Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Renewing America's Compacts in the Pacific, a conversation with Ambassador Joseph Y. Yoon. Please welcome Dr. Victoria Coates, Senior Research Fellow for International Affairs and National Security in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us uh, at this event and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I am indeed, as advertised, Victoria Coates, currently a Senior Research Fellow in International Affairs and National Security here at Heritage. Uh, but I'm standing in front of you today because on August 1st, I will have the distinct honor of becoming the Vice President of the Davis Institute for uh, National Security and Foreign Policy, also here at Heritage, of course. And it's a pleasure to open today's exciting event, Renewing America's Compacts with the Pacific, a conversation with Ambassador Joseph Y. Young. And I actually just said to a colleague out in the foyer, this may be the most important event Davis does this year. Uh, it, it really is a critical issue, and I'm very excited we have this opportunity to introduce it. I'm also honored that Ambassador Yun has agreed to share his time with us today to discuss these critical relationships as they will be a key piece of America's effort to counter the threat of the Chinese Communist Party, one of Kevin Roberts' key priorities here at Heritage and the primary focus of the Davis Institute. Today, Congress faces once a once-in-a-generation opportunity to secure America's advantageous position in a key corner of the Pacific for another generation by renewing and funding the Compact of Free Association, uh, free association Agreements. Ambassador Yun has had quite a busy week with testimony before both the House and the Senate on this issue, so I'd like to defer to him as quickly as possible and will keep my remarks to a minimum. My reaction when Jeff and Andrew introduced me to this project was finally, here is an example of how American foreign assistance should be deployed. Most Americans have never heard of these tiny islands in the Pacific, but I'm sure, pretty sure most Americans, and certainly heritage members, would approve of what we are proposing here, unlike their views on most of what we do with foreign aid. The Compacts of Free Association, or COFA, agreements are bilateral treaties that govern America's unique and privileged defense, economic, and diplomatic relations with the Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and the Republic of Palau, collectively known as the Freely, Freely Associated States, or FAS. After declaring independence, these three states elected to enter into a special association with the United States. The first compact was signed into law during the Reagan administration on November 13, 1986. Compacts for Micronesia and the Marshall Islands were renewed and funded in 2003, while amendments to Palu's compact were most recently made in 2018. Most importantly, the compacts grant the United States full authority over FAS defense matters, including strategic denial rights. This means military forces and personnel of any other state may enter FAS territory only with explicit U.S. authorization. 
The special defense relationships the U.S. enjoys with these COFA countries offer significant geographic advantages. Okay, here's a, here's a map <laughs> that, put things in, that puts things in perspective, and I'm very used to this because I'm an art historian, so the images always go awry. Uh, the FAS lie within the Micronesia subregion of Oceania, Oceania, which includes Guam and the northern Mariana Islands, which are U.S. territories. The FAS are thus a critical point between the U.S. and the Western Pacific. Taiwan, for example, is roughly 7,000 miles from the West Coast and 5,000 miles from Hawaii, but less than 1,500 miles or a four-hour direct flight from Palau. Ominously, China is increasing activity in this region. In 2022, China and the Solomon Islands signed a security agreement that allows the Solomon Islands to request the deployment of Chinese military personnel during loosely defined civil unrest. Without the compacts, the FAS have few domestic policing vessels to respond to Chinese encroachments in their waters, which have been happening with growing frequency. Therefore, the compacts contribute to a broader U.S.-led regional security architecture in the Pacific that can counter Chinese actions and ambitions. In return, the FAS receive economic assistance and access to U.S. federal programs. Heritage is hosting this event on the compacts because U.S. economic aid to two of the three states, Micronesia and the Marshall Islands, expires on September 30th, 2023. For Palau, USAID expires on September 30th, 2024. However, unlike, the micro, unlike Micronesia and Palau, the, United, the US and the Marshall Islands do not yet have an agreement. That means Congress has fewer than 20 legislative days to both renew and fund the compacts and reach a new pact with the Marshall Islands. At Heritage, we believe that renewing and funding these compacts should be an urgent priority for the Congress as China and the U.S. enter the new Cold War. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Joseph Young, along with Jeff Smith, the director of the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Centers, to the stage. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Coates. Thank you. Thank you so much for that um, great introduction, Victoria. Thanks to everyone in the audience for coming out today. Uh, special thanks to Andrew Harding, a research assistant in our Asian Studies Center, who really has been the catalyst for all of our work on the Pacific Islands the last few months. Uh, Andrew has taken a leading role in organizing a number of private discussions and public events to highlight the importance of these Pacific Island countries, the importance of these COFA agreements, and the need to get them funded and approved in a, in a timely manner. So kudos to Andrew, and most especially, thank you to Ambassador thank Yoon you. for joining us today. Uh, Ambassador Yoon has had a distinguished uh, career in the Foreign Service, joining in 1985, serving in a diverse number of locations across Asia, in Seoul, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Indonesia, later as U.S. Ambassador to Malaysia from 2013 to 2016, then as uh, Special Representative for North Korea policy during the Trump administration, and most recently as the Special Presidential Envoy for Compact Negotiations with the COPA countries. 
I've witnessed uh, Ambassador Yoon in action firsthand these last few months, setting a frenetic pace in order to get these agreements um, completed and ideally funded and approved by Congress. And so it's a great pleasure to bring him here today uh, to bring this discussion and this issue more out into the open for a public audience, because it is vitally important uh, to the United States, to these countries, and to our posture in the Indo-Pacific as we contend with China's rise. So we're going to have a conversation for 20 or so minutes before opening it up to the audience. Look forward to your questions. Um, and I thought maybe we could kick it off. Victoria gave a great background on this topic, but I thought we could give you a few minutes to go into a little more detail about the special relationship the United States has had <clears throat> with these three Pacific Island countries and why we're negotiating, renegotiating these special compacts. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff, and thank you, Victoria, for uh, those remarks. And uh, and before I begin, I wanted to, you know, uh, we have Peter Rosenblatt here, Ambassador Rosenblatt, who was actually the first negotiator and uh, to negotiate the compacts. Uh, and he did it 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, and was at the time these countries were becoming independent. So Ambassador Rosenblatt, thank you for coming. Oh, I see it's a great pleasure having you here. So you have a lot, if you have a lot of tough questions, we should be asking him. You know, uh, I, I would say, really, what, what's happened over the last 40 years since uh, Ambassador Rosenblatt was involved is that importance of COFA states were enormous at that time. As they became independent, they were territories, uh, then UN trust territories, and before that, of course, they belonged to as territory of Japan. And, and then before Japan, a lot of them were uh, German territories in which uh, Japan got uh, after the First World War. And so we were, you know, uh, and one of them, CNMI, you might know it better as Saipan, chose independence. I mean, sorry, chose to remain a territory. The other three chose to become their own sovereign states. And that's why we have this unique relationship with them. The most important thing that we get out of them is, of course, access to their land, their air, and their water. And it really covers most of northern uh, Pacific between Hawaii and the Philippines. And so it's crucially important. So generally, when I look at co compact agreement, there is that pillar, security pillar, in which we get the rights. The second important pillar, I think, is the immigration pillar, in which uh, citizens of these countries can come and live without visas, with just their passport, work here, go to school here. So that's a very important pillar, second pillar. And really, third pillar is economic assistance. Uh, so we give economic assistance to them to support their health uh, programs, development programs, infrastructure programs, and environment program. So it is a uh, 
I would say a little bit misleading to think of the money we give them as purely economic assistance because we get big benefits from it, uh, especially in terms of strategic rights and strategic denial. Mm. What strategic denial means, we can keep out anyone we don't want there. And you know, initially when uh, Ambassador Rosenblatt was doing it, there was about issues about Soviet Union. Now it's of course about China. And we've seen that in places like Solomon and somewhat in Kiribati, in, uh, in, in, in New Guinea. So that is, I guess, our fundamental interest, why we need to make sure we maintain this vast space uh, between Hawaii and the uh, Philippines under our control, you mm. know, simply put. That's a great point, and I think Victoria helped add some context to that. When we talk about the tyranny of distance in the Pacific, it's easy to lose sight of, of the sheer size uh, of the Pacific. Um, 7,000 miles Taiwan is from the west coast of the United States. It takes a lot of time to cover that distance. 7,000 miles from the US west coast, but only one less than 1,500 miles from the compact states, uh, from the nearest compact state. That gives you some sense of how having a presence in the Northern Pacific closes the distance to some of our most important strategic partners and some of the most volatile conflict zones in the Western Pacific. Ambassador, thanks to the work you and your team have done, two of the three COFA agreements have tentatively been reached and agreed to, if not funded and approved by Congress. We're still working on a third agreement with the Marshall Islands, um, and there has been some disagreement over the existing memorandum of understanding. Could you explain um, the current state of those negotiations um, and mm -hmm. whether we're likely to reach an agreement soon? Yeah. So earlier this year, we did reach an agreement with the uh, Marshallese government on how much the top line amounts would be, you know, how much the economic grant, trust fund, and so on would be. And so it became a bit of an issue when the negotiator, who's foreign minister at the time, went back. So 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 it's it's I would say we're very close to an agreement. Uh, I think, you know, to be frank with you. Uh, there are internal domestic political problems there, or not problems, developments there, including e elections coming up mm -hmm. uh, in November. So various groups are somewhat posturing, uh, you know, with, with the compact as a kind of political football there. So, so I do expect them to agree. So what we have done in our legislation proposal is that, of course, have the agreed ones, uh, FSM and Palau, set aside as money that's needed, and but also include the, the uh, memorandum of understanding we signed earlier this year, the top line agreement, and include that. So make sure there is place for them 
in the legislation that I hope will be enacted so that when we do reach an agreement, uh, then it's, uh, the money is there. I do expect, uh, and, and I'm very hopeful, that we can reach an agreement in reasonably short time, weeks, you know, uh, and so on. So, so I think we're very close to an agreement with the RMI. Mm -hmm. And we've heard in the introduction about this uh, September 30th deadline. Mm -hmm. Can you expand a little bit on that, why that timeline is so important? September 30th is very important because that's the, that's the end of uh, uh, our fiscal year and also their fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And the current uh, funding arrangement expires at the end of September. So there is no new funding. This is true for FSM and RMI. For Palau, we have one more year, but we've decided to do it together this year. Uh, and, and so we do want their funding not to stop on September 30th. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's very important. That's why we finished this within our fiscal year. That's always been the plan. Mm -hmm. And the current legislation being discussed, we're looking at a top line number of around 7 billion, 7.1 billion, which includes a little more than 500 million for postal services. Mm -hmm. um, that number is a little deceiving as a top line figure because it's spread across 20 years right. and across mm -hmm. three separate countries. So what we're really discussing is around 150 to 200 million dollars a year per country for in part for exclusive defense access in the Northern Pacific. Um, but could you help break down that $7 billion figure into a sure. little more granular detail? Where exactly is that money yeah. going to? So you're right, it's, it's 7.1 billion. So 600 million is for post office uh, to compensate them for providing uh, postal services. We didn't used to pay that, but uh, uh, now we're paying that. Uh, I mean, if you thought working with North Koreans were tough, post office is pretty tough too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and then the other one is 6.5 billion. Of that, we've already mentioned 2.3 billion going to uh, Marshall Islands. And then the biggest share is, of course, the biggest of them all, which is Micronesia FSM. I think they get about 3.3 uh, billion, and the remaining 900 million goes to Palau, which is the smallest. So if you look at it, about 3.3 for uh, for, uh, for Micronesia, 2.3 for Marshall Islands, 900 million for Palau. Does that kind of add up to 6.5? Yes. I hope so. Yeah, and and this is across 20 years. It's across 20 years. So, I mean, your estimate of 150 is probably too much. Mm -hmm. uh, if you account for inflation or all that, it's probably less than 100 each a year, you know? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I think we were doing a back-of-the-envelope calculation earlier. I, when we negotiated these 20 years ago, I think the top line figure was around $5 billion. But when you account for inflation and the Postal Service, yeah, we're really yeah. looking at yeah. an inflation-adjusted dollars, not even an increase in, in funds. Uh, it, it is an increase. And uh, it's, it is, of course, an increase. Uh, 
uh, I would say what I try to do with this amount is to get back to numbers in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, because really, I would say, last 20 years or so, these countries have been neglected mm. in both in our uh, policy-wise as well as funding amounts. Mm. So I've tried to increase it this, uh, this time around to be more similar to what we did uh, the, first in, in the first time. I yeah. see. Mm -hmm. So what happens if we don't get a deal done by September 30th? Well, number one, this will be a terrific, a terrible blow for the islands because they count on this money for government operations, for healthcare, uh, for infrastructure projects, and everything else you can think of. Uh, so it's, it's going to hit them in a very big way. It will be a bit of a disaster, in fact. Uh, but secondarily, I think it really damages US credibility. Uh, we promised this amount. These are what we call freely associated states. Freely, they are associated with us. We take care of their defense needs. They give us their defense space. And in fact, uh, uh, three, three compact states, they volunteer for US armed forces at a higher rate than practically anywhere else uh, in, you know, compared to other states. Mm. That's a point worth underscoring. Yeah. They serve in US armed forces yes. and serve in extremely high numbers proportion out of their population. And, and so we have made uh, FAS countries the centerpiece of our Pacific strategy. Mm. And so if they're not passed, I think this really damages our credibility, our credibility to make Pacific free and open. I mean, how many, how many have you, you know, times have you heard that slogan? You know, uh, and our credibility in the southern part of Pacific, where we are in stiff competition in various places, ranging from Papua New Guinea to you know to Kiribati to Solomon to Samoa. So I would say this is where we have, we have made a stand for the last 40 years, in fact, since the end of, end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. and, and so to me, it's about our own credibility mm -hmm. at stake as well. It strikes me that we are in a um, increasingly active competition with China mm -hmm. across the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And this is w one of the few corners of the Pacific where we hold a stronger hand. And we are at risk of, of misplaying that hand and losing our influence. And, and would it be safe to assume that if the deals don't get done, that China will look to spread its influence further? No question. I mean, it's not that, you know, October 1, uh, Marshall Islands or Micronesia will invite Chinese security. It's not the case. They are good friends, culturally, politically consistent. But what will happen is that the relationship will erode. 
and it can erode very, very rapid rate. And so that's what I'm worried about. And you know, besides our own credibility, mm -hmm. which will be, I think, hard to recover. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I you know I don't know whether you know Jeff, you've uh, read about three months ago. Micronesian President David Panuelo wrote this letter. It's an 11-page letter outlining, detailing what the Chinese have done, ranging from corruption, bribing politicians there, to very coercive tactics. Uh, and, and so I would really invite any, you know, people, those, uh, those you know, interested more mm in what Chinese actually do in this area to read that letter. He's a, you know, he's the president. I mean, he stuck his neck out in writing this letter, and it's gotten a lot of traction. Mm. I have seen that letter, and it was very revealing. Um, there's a lot of overlap with complaints we've heard in other countries mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the way the Chinese are exercising their influence, using economic coercion, bribing mm -hmm. officials. Uh, essentially trying to coerce regional countries to align with their foreign policy right. priorities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to assume we could expect the same to happen if these Pacific Island countries were no longer part of the special compact. I mean, it's happening in terms of Chinese trying to gain influence. Uh, most recently, our Department of Justice uh, arrested two persons of Chinese origin who now have Marshallese passport, mm. who were trying to make parts of Marshall Islands kind of, uh, you know, uh, duty-free zone, free port zone for their own exclusive access. So it's it's, it's a huge issue mm. uh, within within Pacific Islands. These are small islands, economically very challenged. And so they are open to influence and open to, you know, essentially dollar, you know, money uh, inducements. And I assume having been such close partners with the U.S. Yeah. for some time, they also don't have the requisite military capabilities to patrol their own waters and defend themselves if the U.S. Besides not. few Coast Guard vessels, they have no military. Yeah. In fact, we are responsible for defending them. Hmm. Uh, so in that sense, it's not a typical mutual secure, you know, uh, uh, defense treaty. It's a one-way treaty, you know. Yeah. I think we have time for some audience questions. I would just ask um, folks to to um, contain their question to a question. Um, Andrew, are you working the mic? Yes. Maybe we could work up, start from the front and work back. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Amal Torres. It's such an honor to meet you um, and fairly serendipitous. I'm with the Irregular Warfare Center, and one of the things that we are working on right now is building a stronger, resilient relationship with one of these, one of the islands, Marshall Islands. And it's actually news to us that this agreement is not going to um, potentially expire. So my question to you is, what are some things that we can get ahead of, um, and what could this possibly mean for anything that we had plans when it comes to working with the Marshall Islands and other uh, um, islands in the agreement? I, I'm sorry, I'm not quite My sure. My question is, how would this affect any of the plans that we had um, as a Department of Defense to would, work with the Marshall Islands? If we wanted to reach agreement, would yeah. it impact other 
ongoing U.S. initiatives. If the, yeah, if the agreement that. expires, how would this impact the DOD's relationship with the Marshall Islands? So legally, of course, uh, our strategic rights and security arrangement, they don't expire. Only the economic provisions expire. So it will not affect, for example, Defense Department has a base in Kwajalein. Uh, nor would it affect any of our joint exercise, as well as other projects. And we have plenty of projects uh, in, in Palau, as well as uh, uh, Micronesia. It's not going to affect those. But in some sense, they are tied, even though one is in perpetual, the other one expires after a certain period. So if we, you know, you know, this is a question that we would have to pose to Marshallese. If we end the economic side, what impact does it have on our security arrangement? We're not going to go there yet, obviously. But I think it will impact their confidence in us. Uh, it will impact, of course, their own domestic well-being. So, so it's not good news in that front, which is why we really need to see enactment by end of September. I am uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former FSO. Wondering if there's a separate pot of money for nuclear medicine, and uh, are there provisos in there which essentially forbid the Marshallese or Balawans from uh, arranging permission for Chinese fishing boats and ferromanganese miners uh, to work in their territories? There is nothing that forbids. I mean, th these countries, of course, have their own mine. We don't possess their mining rights. We don't possess uh, their territories. They are the possession of each of these countries. And their resources for them to develop uh, uh, you know, uh, by themselves, whether it's fisheries, maritime resource, or land-based resource. Uh, obviously, they do so under their own international obligations. And so that does not impact the security side. Nuclear medicine? What is nuclear medicine? I'm not sure I know what that is. He's asking what do you mean by uh, nuclear medicine? Victims of the atomic bomb tests. OK, that's a completely separate issue, of course. You know, We have tested 67 nuclear devices between late 40s and throughout 50s. And the legal issues have been, you know, we've discussed them under Section 177 of the compact. And of course, there have been other compensation, including for those in resettlement. And DOE continues its program. So radiation, I believe, is still there. I believe damages are still there. And I believe there are lingering health effects, too. And even though we've dealt with them, I also believe beyond legal responsibility, we have moral and political responsibility as well for what we did. So that's part of compact compensation, or pa uh, compact package that we're discussing with our uh, Marshall Islands. 
Hi, my name is Isabel. And looking forward, what measures or actions do you believe are necessary for the United States to maintain and strengthen the partnership with the FAS nations in the facing evolving geopolitical challenges, including those posed by China? Hi, my name is Laurel Schwartz. I am a writer for The China Project, and I also recently returned from Beijing, where I was the principal of Canadian Chinese schools. Uh, in 2021, in the last administration, the Fulbright Greater China Program was canceled as part of the executive order on Hong Kong normalization. I'm curious, I know this is a little bit outside of your scope, but I'm curious what movement there is for the administration to restore that by executive order, particularly as that is, sorry, there's a fly, um, particularly as that is something that could balance out the Chinese influence and be a low risk way of re-engagement, particularly as we have fewer and fewer people studying Chinese in the United States. Thank you. So simply put, I have nothing to do with that part. <laughs> and so I would pass that question. Uh, uh, maybe Francisco, we can take it down and, and, and get back to you on that, okay? On, on, the, on the first person's question, uh, obviously, we need to enact compact uh, by to get the funding stream going to make sure we keep on, you know, secure and essentially exclusive strategic access uh, in in this part of the world. I think that's the most important thing to do. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the funding, I'm going to jump in here again for a second. What does this look like if Congress is able to pass? Uh, to authorize and fund these agreements. How is that done on the current legislative calendar? What are the different options available? So how Congress deals with money, passes appropriations, and this would be mandatory uh, appropriations, is, is a very non-transparent thing, if I may say so, you know. And so what we do is, you know, I, some of you will have seen, uh, you know, us testifying in, 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 in Senate committee last week, House committee this week. And so, so there are different rules for House and Senate. For example, House is looking for offsets. You know, if I'm going to ask for 7.1 billion, you know, where are you going to get cut 7.1 billion from somewhere else? So there are a lot of different rules, and you know, obviously, at the end of the day, they both have to agree and vote. Uh, and so there are also many ways to do that, including as a standalone bill, or including together, you know. Uh, uh, another vehicle. But at the end of the day, essentially, it is pretty much determined by the committee's uh, chairs and the leadership in both uh, to get this across. And obviously, they work closely with the administration to do that. Mm -hmm. My impression is that uh, our proposal has a huge bipartisan support both Senate and House. And now we're trying to find a path of making that bipartisan support into, uh, into something that can get enacted. 
Thank you much. Uh, Steve Luckett, I work and study here in the city. Thank you very much for moderating today's uh, discussion. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, come uh, You um, Maybe we can shake it up a bit. You uh, were pretty diplomatic in your, understandably, diplomatic in your response just now about the workings of the Hill. Uh, I'll ask you, why do you think um, the Senate hasn't uh, passed the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea? Someone mentioned deep seabed mining a bit ago. Uh, the EEZ and territorial sea issues have been pretty much accepted, but um, you know we're talking four decades, uh, seven presidents. I don't know anyone who would agree to being in a relationship for that long, uh, sort of privatizing the benefits without the, the stamp of legal authority. So uh -huh. thank you again. Yeah, a bit of a curveball, but that's a curveball. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, you know, you know, uh, fortunately for us, the standard of passage uh, is not as high as a treaty. Treaty requires its, its two-thirds vote, uh, and and so I think that's always been a problem to get two-thirds in the Senate to ratify a treaty. For us, all we need is a majority. So you know, you know, so so I hope we get there. Uh, I mean, quite honestly, this is a very general question. Uh, there are a number of things that uh, that has not been ratified, including, for example, membership. You know, uh, in 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 lot of arms control uh, uh, treaties. So treaties are notoriously difficult to pass. Uh, I mean, that's my own personal general impression. Uh, for law of the sea, I'm sure there are other more specific issues. Why you know over a third of uh, of of uh, senators would object. You know, do you have any views on Jeff on that? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> I do, but we, we'll save that for okay, another time. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, let me, let's assume the uh, compact agreements are approved and funded. Mm -hmm. Are there any other countries in the region where this could be a useful template or model to pursue or COFA-like pact with maybe other Pacific Island nations? Mm -hmm. I think broadly, as we look at the Pacific, you know, we can divide it into three groups. One is the group that we're dealing with. It's called Greater Micronesia. You know, Greater Micronesia, that includes Guam, Saipan, three compact states, and then even a little bit south, Kiribati might be included in uh, Micronesia. And then below them, I mean, those are, you know, especially northern half, with the exception of Kiribati, pretty much uh, compact states. Below them are Melanesia, and they would begin in Papua New Guinea, Solomons, uh, Fiji, uh, and so on. And so traditionally, you know, a lot of them have ties with Britain and Australia, and so, so Australia has been very active in that. The last one is the Polynesia group, you know, where, you know, Tahiti, of uh, New Caledonia and so on, where France is quite active, uh, as well as New Zealand. I think that you know China has really, I you know, uh, uh, made it priority to gain traction in Melanesia area. You know, uh, that is central to uh, Pacific, and so we've seen their activity in places like uh, uh, Solomon's and so on. 
Could, I, could you yeah, talk mm -hmm. just for a moment, because I don't know that the audience here or, or watching at home is familiar with the Solomon Islands case. Um, this is one area where we have seen China, after years and years of mm -hmm. pledging not to expand military bases abroad or sign security pacts with foreign countries, we do see Chinese military bases beginning to crop up abroad and Chinese security personnel showing up. Uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific. Um, what, what has happened in the Solomon Islands case, and why is that concerning for the rest of the Pacific Islands neighborhood? I think it's, it's concerning because what Chinese have done is really put together a strategy based on getting their politicians in line with them. And, you know, you know if, based on payments, bribery. And they've also uh, made a lot of inroads in getting the natural resources there in terms of uh, uh, rights to uh, timber and mining rights. And that has worked, been manifested into a new security arrangement between Solomons and China, which gives China security access for their police. And so I think that is what troubles us most. And did we also see diplomatic switch in recognition? We saw diplomatic re recognition switch, I think a few years ago, from Taiwan to Beijing. Yes. And so this, uh, this is uh, pretty much, <clears throat> I would say, tactics of China in the region. And, and this is what we need to push back against. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think we're, maybe have time for one last question. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador, for your presentation. Um, my name is Aaron. Um, my background is more on ASEAN, but uh, I'm just curious um, to what extent, because uh, in the briefer does mention that um, the, the president's cancellation, uh, the visit to Papua New Guinea is quite uh, um, something, right? Uh, it's a diplomatic you know, absence from the region. Like, I was just curious, is, is it an issue that um, the Pacific Island nations have raised with you about, you know, the, is there a lack of senior level engagement or like what kind of engagement did they decide further? I think when we talk about you know, uh, a commitment of another country to a region and so on, it really there are two things that comes to mind. One is, div you know, how much resource, how much resource are you spending? That is a really, a, you know, test of, you know, how much do you care, you know? Second is political capital. How much political capital are you expending? And that's obviously high-level engagement, uh, and and you know, and cultural engagement, media engagement, and so this I believe is what the Pacific wants. Uh, I would say, in terms of culturally and historically, they have very very pro-U.S. leanings, and so given the choice. To me, there is no question that they want to be more closely aligned with the United States. 
So, and we have been trying to do that in the administration. We had, of course, beyond the compact, uh, several other programs, uh, including Blue Pacific. And, 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 and so right now on the political engagement, uh, President Biden held for the first time Pacific U.S. summit September last year. You're right. He missed the one, you know, uh, going to Papua New Guinea uh, because of the budget impasse at the time. But he has uh, committed holding second summit in September this year, you know. So we are making lost ground. Uh, it's not easy and for, you know, advocating, you know, it's, 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 you know, you need to keep on advocating. But with you know strong partners, I think we can do that. So, so I think for 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 all of us working on Pacific, you know, including Jeff and Andrew and so on, it, that that's why it is so critical that we get this compacts done. Uh, mm. Otherwise, we we're going to lose credibility. Mm. Well, Ambassador Yoon, thank you so thank much you for doing much. this you know, today. Yeah. More important than this, you can clap. <laughs> um, more important than this, thanks for all the hard work you've been doing behind the scenes to get thank you. these agreements mm -hmm. yeah. finished. Yeah. You are almost done with all of your work. <laughs> now it's time for Congress to do their job and approve and fund the agreements, mm -hmm. hopefully. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Ambassador Yoon, thank you. Thank you very much. Huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank <clears throat>